welcome to Mind Crying Limits Show with me, Swinton Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we're joined by Keith Preston to discuss, will Israel eventually end up like East Prussia? Tim. East Prussia, if you're not aware of it, played a huge role in the interwar period. Um, it was one of the central causes of the invasion of Poland um, in order to open up corridors to reach it. And East Prussia does not really exist anymore. It was a region of about 2 million people, a port city. And by 1945, and then the final explosions of 1950, hardly any Germans lived there. Today, it's an extraterritorial Russian city. And actually, the, in the Ukraine conflict, uh, Lithuania was threatening to, there's, threatened to close off. Uh, that's actually one of the tensions out there today. Uh, Emmanuel Kant's from there. So it's not like it's some minor historical uh, region. Um, one of the largest evacuations of 1945 against Hitler's order, but by the way, was done by the German Navy. Uh, to and most of them have been dispersed throughout existing Germany. So the question for me to, is: This is an example of a state that once existed that no longer no that no longer no longer exists. And you know, we recently saw Israel get attacked by Hamas, and uh, this you know Israel is also a small region in, in, in compared to its neighbors. It's sort of a settler colonial society as well. So there are some slight differences in this sense. Um, but my point here is to have a further discussion Israel. Is Israel going to wind up with the same fate? Um, will Israel overextend itself and it find itself basically as refugees in its own territory here? Uh, as an aside, my own position on the thing is I could care less to, to some extent. I mean, my response to normie conservatives and normie liberals would be something along the lines of, Open borders for Israel, it's not the United States' concern. I don't think it's Britain's concern. I don't think it's France's concern. I don't think it's any of NATO's concern. Uh, most times that more or less ends the discussion here. But I do th I do find Israel interesting in the historical uh, record because it is a kind of startup nation almost. Because, you know, they did have a large outpouring of import of in immigrants. And also immigrants from the collapse of the Soviet Union contribute to this too. Um, so after in, from Europe, you know, it starts with the, the 1920s period. But can Israel maintain its uh, dominance in the region enough that all its various enemies, I mean, almost all, none, Lebanon, uh, Jordan, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Qatar, the Emirates, they all have their internal disagreements. But one thing that they tend to across the board agree about is they don't like Israel. And whether you think the United States controls, how much you think the United States affects it, if you, even by half of what Peter Zian says, it seems like the U.S. empire and global reach will cut down the coming years. So this seems to be a bad fate, so to speak, for Israel. Like, can it maintain this thing? It does have nuclear weapons. So, Keith, what would you think about that question? Will it eventually wind up more or less off the map, so to speak? And I just use East Prussia as a sort of... A, an example of a once powerful state that no longer exists. Well, um, Russia, uh, Israel's long-term prospects, I think, are fairly dim. Uh, the problem with Israel is that Zionism was a flawed project from the beginning. Uh, if we look at the history of Zionism, we see that um, it had nothing to do with the Jewish religion. In fact, uh, most of the founders of the Zionist movement in the 19th century were secular Jews who were atheists. They, you know, they were not believers or practitioners in the traditional Jewish religion. Uh, what they wanted was a separate nation uh, for Jews that uh, would be a, a shield against uh, anti-Semitism. And for uh, much of the history of the Zionist movement prior to World War II, Zionism was viewed as a fringe, you know, crackpot viewpoint, even among a lot of Jews. Most Jews viewed themselves as citizens of whatever nation they were a part of, whether it was England or America or Germany or Russia or whatever. Um, you had, you know, some Jews that embraced Zionism. And, and initially, there was a lot of sympathy for Zionism from the left, from the Jewish left, because, and uh, largely for the same reason that communism appealed to a lot of Jews, in the sense that they had this idea, well, you know, if the workers have no country, if we don't have countries, then there's not going to be nationalities, there's not going to be ethnic exclusion and, and anti-Semitism and things like that. 
So Zionism and, and communism uh, both had an appeal to Jews because they were viewed as antidotes to, to anti-Semitism, to European anti-Semitism. Um, of course, the uh, region where Israel is located was for centuries controlled by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and Zionism became a viable project. Uh, well, initially there were ideas about having a Jewish homeland in, in places outside the Holy Land, like uh, places like Argentina, Uganda, these were all considered as potential Jewish homelands. Um, but after World War I, when uh, the Holy Land uh, became uh, an English uh, possession, an English uh, colonial possession, uh, then all of a sudden the idea of Jewish uh, re reconquest of the Holy Land became something that was viable. Uh, and that's how you got the, the Balfour Declaration, the Balfour Declaration, uh, for the, you know, which was the idea of creating a Jewish state in Palestine. Um, and that idea lingered for a while, and you had a lot of Jews that migrated to um, Palestine. And you also had uh, Zionist terrorist groups that were engaged in you know, terrorism against all kinds of interest in the region, against Arabs, against the British, against lots of people. Uh, and this went on for a while, and then the, the number of uh, Zionist migrants uh, continued to increase. And then after World War II, after the Holocaust happened, there was this uh, increased sympathy for Zionism because people were thinking, oh yeah, well maybe the Jews really do need uh, a homeland of their own. So with the assistance of England and America, Israel was established um, largely through the actions of Zionist terrorist organizations. Uh, in, the, in the Middle Eastern world, there's a thing called the Nakba, which was the uh, establishment of Israel in 1948, accompanied by the ethnic cleansing of 700,000 Palestinians from the region. Um, there is, um, uh, of course, there was the Arab-Israeli War of 1948 as well. And, you know, I was watching a video the other day from Dennis Prager where he was giving his own version of the history of, of Israel. And, of course, Dennis Prager is an ultra-Zionist. And he was making it sound like, uh, you know, poor little Israel was always just trying to live in peace and, and, and never did anything to anyone. And these, these nasty Arabs just won't leave them alone. And he gave the Arab-Israeli war as a, an example of that. But the Arab-Israeli war was provoked by the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians during the establishment of Israel, which within that part of the world is called the Nakba. Uh, also, Israel was viewed by the Arabs as an uh, as an effort to uh, create a Western colonial outpost in the Middle East uh, in in Arab territory. Uh, so the, the Arabs had the idea: look, we threw off the Ottomans, you know. Uh, now we're under the thumb of the British, and now they're trying to uh, create colonial outposts uh, in Arab territory. Uh, so so Israel was viewed as Western colonialism. Um, and that's still how, you know, third worldists and, and the far left view Israel today, typically, I think with some justification. Um, and so after Israel was established, Israel continued to engage in expansionism. Um, if you go back and you look at some of the quotes of prominent uh, Israeli leaders from the uh, late mid to late 20th century, you hear them talking about an, uh, establishing an Israeli empire, about reclaiming what they think was the ancient Hebrew kingdom. Uh, you know, some of them talk about the, you know, claiming territory between the Tigris and Euphrates, uh, you know, based on the biblical uh, kingdom of, of Israel, which in my view is, is, a myth, is mythical. I mean, there really was an ancient Hebrew civilization. It really was divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Some of the uh, later kings that are mentioned in the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament, we do have documentation of their existence, like the Omri dynasty and Hezekiah and Josiah. But the, the biblical story of the King David and King Solomon, you know, the, the hardline religious Zionists want to reclaim what they think was this ancient Davidic kingdom uh, of the territory associated with that. But there's no actual historical evidence that that even existed, that there was some massive Hebrew empire 
uh, in Palestine uh, you know, 3,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago. That's not compatible with what we actually know about that region from that time period. Uh, but you do have some of these hardline uh, Jewish uh, religious parties in Israel that are aligned with uh, Netanyahu that believe this. Uh, so that's what they see their mission as being. Uh, so this ongoing battle uh, over the Palestinians has taken place, you know, ever since the Nakba happened. And um, in 1967, of course, there was the 67 war. It's disputed as to who actually started that war. You know, um, of course, in the, in the West, the line we get is that the, the nasty Arab countries all invaded Israel just to be mean to Jewish people. The, the, the other side of it, you know, the Arab side of it is that Israel was, you know, gathering forces to try to expand into uh, the surrounding territories. In fact, that's what happened at the end of the Six-Day War in 67. Israel seized control of the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. That's how, how they got the, uh, um, the Golan Heights in the West Bank from Syria and Jordan as well, uh, and, and Gaza. They got that from Egypt as well. Um, so the um, so Israel continued to expand after '67, and then and then of course there was a Yom Kippur War uh, in '73, and that's particularly important because by this time new, Israel had nuclear weapons. New, Israel got achieved nukes in 19, in the 1960s. Uh, they've never actually admitted that they have nuclear weapons, but it's common knowledge. But they're not even recognized as an officially nuclear country, even though they obviously are. Uh, but in 1973, Golda Meir um, threatened to use atomic weapons if President Richard Nixon, U.S. President Nixon, did not provide uh, Israel with the weapons they, they needed to defeat the Arabs in the Yom Kippur War. Uh, Meir actually threatened the use of atomic weapons. And in fact, Israel has a, 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 a doctrine, a nuclear doctrine, called the Samson Option. And that is basically that if Israel is ever, it looks like it's going to go down in defeat, they're going to light up the Middle East with nuclear weapons, the Samson option. And the, that, the, the, the name of that is based on the biblical story of Samson. Like Samson is this character in the Old Testament or, or Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, who, um, you know, when he, he, before when, he, when it looks like the end is near, he uses his great strength to push down these pillars and, and this, you know, temple-like thing crashes in on, on, on his enemies. Uh, so that's, that's, you know, that's, they're using that as a metaphor, but what, that's what they mean. They mean, well, if it looks like Israel is going down in defeat, they're going to light up the Middle East with nukes. Um, and in fact, I've always thought that was, uh, I, I actually didn't even know about the Samson option as a, as a, as a military uh, as a nuclear doctrine that the Israelis maintained until recently. Somebody uh, told me about it, and I started researching it. Uh, I always figured, though, that it, because Israel has nukes, it's something they would likely try if they, uh, you know, looked like the, the end was near. So uh, that, that is an interesting situation because Israel's uh, legitimacy continues to fade over time because uh, People around the world increasingly see what's going on with the Palestinians, and they see Israel's role in destabilization of the region, and Israel has lost a lot of its legitimacy because of that. You know, people are getting increasingly um, uh, frustrated with the role of Israel in, in Middle Eastern politics. Um, and um, so, it, you know, it, it's, it's definitely, and of course, with this October 7th incident, uh, we now have this full-scale war going on, and you know it's, it's important to recognize that um, 1,400 people, Israelis, were killed in the October 7th attacks by Hamas. But Israel's uh, response to that has been an all-out war on Gaza, and Israel has already killed at least twice as many people in the bombing of Gaza as Hamas killed in the initial attack on October 7th. Uh, you know, so Israel's already enacted retribution twice over, at least, if not more by now. Uh, and then the big issue right at the present time is how far is this war going to go? Uh, there's evidence that Hezbollah might be involved and that Iran might even get involved. Of course, the United States has recently sent a couple of thousand 
uh, troops to the region, ostensibly in a non-military role or non-combatant role. Uh, the U.S. ships have also been sent to the region as well. Uh, so there's, you know, it's likely that if it, uh, Hezbollah, or certainly if Iran, got involved on on the, on the side of Hamas, that it, that the United States would join in on behalf on the behalf of Israel. Uh, another issue is the the refugees. The uh, you know, it, it, Israel is taking this situation as an opportunity to ethnically cleanse the the uh, the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip is a relatively small strip of land uh, on the on the uh, western uh, border of Israel on the, along the Mediterranean coast, and there's about 2.2 million Gazans that live there. And what Israel is trying to do is force the uh, Palestinians out of Gaza and basically force them into Egypt. Of course, the Egyptians don't don't want them in part because they don't want a massive influx of migrants and refugees, and in part because the um, low, Palestinians are low status people in the Middle East. You know, they're kind of like the Roma or something in Europe, and also because uh, you know Egypt does not want to embolden Israel as well to continue to expand. But Israel is trying to ethnically cleanse the um, Gaza Strip and in part to eradicate Hamas, to not have the issue of Hamas to deal with anymore. Uh, and, and, and Hamas, by the way, was actually created in part by the, with the assistance of Israel as opposition to the PLO. Uh, like the PLO was a, a Palestinian liberation organization, was a more secular-oriented Palestinian movement that was sympathetic to Arab nationalism, whereas Hamas is an Islamist group uh, that's more of an, you know, they're, they're, they have, uh, they're not the, really the same thing as Al-Qaeda, but they're closer to something like that. They're closer to Islamic fundamentalism than to secular Arab nationalism. So the, originally, Israel, through Qatar, steered money and support to Hamas as a, trying to cultivate them as a controlled opposition to, to, you know, to separate the Palestinian movement into these competing factions. And, and right now, today, uh, the Fatah, which was the political arm of the PLO, they're actually the governing body of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank under Abbas, whereas Hamas is actually the governing body of uh, Gaza. So Israel is trying to eradicate uh, Hamas from Gaza and also ethnically cleanse the Gaza Strip so that they can annex that land once again. And at one point, Israel was actually expanding into Gaza and putting settlements in Gaza, just like they do in the West Bank, they they put they pulled all that back back in I guess it was 06 or 07 or whatever um, you know they're after the conflict at that point, but now they're trying to reclaim Gaza, reestablish the settlements by pushing out the Palestinians. Also, there's uh, in the Mediterranean off the coast of Gaza, it's possible to drill for oil and gas. So Israel wants access to that as well. They want Gaza so they can annex that as part of Israel proper, place Jewish settlements there, and then access the oil and gas in the Mediterranean, all right? So, and then pushing the Palestinians into, into uh, Egypt. Now, the, uh, it, you know, as I said, the Egyptians don't want to take uh, the Palestinians for the reasons I've described. It's also true that Israel has created a blockade to prevent uh, humanitarian assistance from being delivered to the Palestinians. They've actually uh, bombed an area called the Rafa, which is the the um, the entranceway into Gaza from Egypt in order to prevent humanitarian supplies from coming in uh, to Egypt. I mean, I mean, coming into um, uh, Palestine or into Gaza through through Egypt. Um, so world opinion is becoming increasingly disdainful of Israel because of this. We've seen massive demonstrations in a lot of different places uh, on behalf of Palestine, you know, the kind of demonstrations like we haven't really seen since the uh, Iraq war, the opposition to the Iraq war about way back in uh, 2003, 20 years ago. Yeah, so that's where that stands now. And in the process, Israel is losing its viability if Israel gets involved in urban warfare in Gaza, it's going to be house-to-house -house warfare, which is the bloodiest, 
most brutal type of warfare there is. And anybody, everybody I've ever known who's been in the military in combat will, will tell you that, that that's the worst kind of warfare you want to be in is urban guerrilla warfare. Uh, and that's what Israel is facing in, in Gaza. And then if Hamas, I mean, if Hezbollah gets involved, then it's going to be uh, another uh, um, front on, on Israel's border with Lebanon. Uh, so that's kind of where things now. So it, it's not really looking good for Israel because Israel is making the same mistake as the United States after September 11th, where the United States drastically overreached and alienated world opinion and then got bogged down in these guerrilla warfares that they eventually lost. And Israel seems to be positioned to do the same thing. I will say the big difference for United States, though, is that is um, it's the distance away. It doesn't it's not in the uh, Pacific neighborhood. So I guess the follow up question here was the um, it, it seems to me that the Israel all, all it takes its for enemies to win once. And then it's, it's more or less um, um, it's more or less gone in this sense. It has a lot more comparisons with the uh, uh, it, it can't really fight a two front war. It seems like its enemies can bring it into a, some Stalingrad situation where if just a war of attrition. It, it, all the other places outnumber them significantly. And if you combine the fact of the United States, if the United States does any moderate pullback, it seems like the United States um, has plays some role in supporting it. Obviously, it plays a role in supporting it. Um, but even if that cuts, cuts back just a little bit, it seems like that would have a long-term problem here. So my next question for you, Keith, is it's on the role the United States plays in Israel. Um, is the, I think there's a standard view on the American left, which I think is basically factually wrong, which is the United States is an unfatic, all gung ho supporting supporter of Israel. I think that's basically empirically wrong, uh, because with the nuclear weapons, for instance, it seems like certain aspects of the U.S. regime didn't want Israel to get nuclear weapons, and actually one reason is I think they don't keep their because they're not they're not a non proliferation country. They're not one of the P five countries there so you know like if you united states has looked the other way with india and pakistan but it, the first one it actually had to look the other way was uh israel um was like uh because the end the un non-proliferation agreement never signed that anyway um so does the united states control does the united states restrain israel i mean does it stop it from shall we say, expanding elsewhere. Because in the 78, the, the, the peace treaty that was negotiated for the Sinai Peninsula, I think the 80s, Camp David Accords, uh, that that was, you know, it seems like the United States almost prefers, the, it, it's not the most popular position, but it almost seems like the United States views Israel as more of a thorn than any particularly useful. Um, so, so you can almost say the Zionists are actually uh, opposition to the United States. They might use the United States, um, but the United States doesn't necessarily get much benefit from them, um, in, in in my opinion. And that that's another thing about political public opinion um, on Israel, which also doesn't fare well long term. Because if you look at like younger people, of course, the older neoconservatives and the older neoliberals like Biden and John McCain, John McCain's dead, but they're all supporters of it. But if you look at some of the um, Matt Gates or AOC, yes, they can be caranged into it. Yes, they're probably, for this war, going to write them a blank check. But the future prospects of that may be less so here. So what's your role in the United States? And is it is it is it co-ally? Is it is it an ally like Britain? Not that now, of course, Sean Gabb would say Britain is an ally. It would say that it's a vassal. So in some sense, that might be the wrong parallel there. Um, but there seems to be more interest Britain and the United States have than United States and um, uh, Israel. So what would you say the role of the United States in this going forward, Keith? Well, the history of the relationship between the United States is complicated and it's evolved over time. Of course, the United States originally played a very significant role in the establishment of Israel, for example, gaining Israel's recognition in the UN and things like that. Now, there was a strategic reason for why the United States was doing that, and that is after World War II, 
the main thing that the United States was worried about geopolitically was the expansion of the Soviet Union. Uh, and what the U.S. was most worried about in the Middle East, other than maintaining access to and control over petroleum interests, was the United States was also worried about uh, the Arab world becoming increasingly pro-Soviet. They were concerned about Soviet uh, the Soviets getting a, a foot in the uh, Arab world. Uh, and they didn't want that to happen, obviously. And you did have that. You had communist uh, Arabic, Arab movements. You had other Arab nationalist movements that were sympathetic to the Soviet Union and that the Soviet Union tried to cultivate as client states. So this was a geopolitical issue for the United States. Now, initially, um, the United States wanted to have Israel as a Western, you know, pro-American outpost in the Middle East to counter, you know, pro-Soviet uh, influence. Um, also, there was some initially there was some you know, uh, possibility that the is that Israel would enter into the Soviet orbit as well, you know, because you, you did have a lot of uh, left wing Jews that were Soviet sympathetic and Russian Jews that were Soviet sympathetic also. Uh, so the United States had uh, a geopolitical interest in trying to maintain a balancing act between the Arabs and Israel in the early Cold War period. Uh, in fact, in the when the Suez Canal crisis happened in 1956. President Eisenhower sided with the Egyptians over the Israelis, uh, in large part because he didn't want to alienate the Arab world uh, over that particular issue. Um, in the 1960s, the Kennedy administration was very strongly pro-Israel. Interestingly, in the United States, there's this lengthy history of alliances between Irish Catholics and Jews for some reason as well. Uh, the Kennedys have always been very pro-Israel, like Bobby Kennedy today is is very, very, Bobby Kennedy Jr. who's running for president, he's very, very zealously pro-Israel. Uh, so th that's a bit interesting. And then also uh, in the Johnson administration, the Lyndon Johnson administration, after the 67 war and Israel's victory in that war, it, the Johnson administration came to view the Arab countries as weak and Israel as stronger and started thinking, okay, well, if we want a strong ally in the Middle East, it needs to be Israel. Um, and then, of course, there's the Yom Kippur War, where, you know, the Golda Meir essentially engaged in nuclear blackmail of the United States in order to obtain weaponry. Um, you know, in spite of the fact that the Arab world retaliated against the United States by imposing the the, the fuel embargo, the OPEC fuel embargo, I actually remember that. I, I was uh, a kid then, uh, and I remember the impact of the fuel embargo on the United States, where fuel was rationed and you could only buy fuel on designated days and stuff like that. Um, that was in 1973. Um, and then, of course, uh, as Tim mentioned, there was the Camp David Accords in 1978 that were Jimmy Carter brokered a deal between uh, the then Prime Minister of Israel, Menachem Begin, uh, who had actually been a terrorist associated with the Argoon uh, during the period in which Israel was founded back in the 40s, and, uh, and also Anwar Sadat. Uh, Anwar Sadat was the president of Egypt. He had succeeded uh, Nasser, uh, you know, the, the famous Arab nationalist leader from the from the 1950s and 60s. So Jimmy Carter brokered a peace deal between Israel and Egypt, where what it amounted to was um, Egypt, I mean, uh, Israel would return the Sinai Peninsula that they seized from Egypt during the 67 war. They would return that to Egypt. Uh, in, and then Egypt would agree to recognize Israel uh, and in the process, basically, the United States would pay Egypt to do all of this. I mean, if you look at what countries received the most direct aid uh, from the United States, uh, Israel and Egypt are two of the top ones. And, and that's that's why in the case of Egypt, you know, the, the United States basically has paid Egypt to to pretend to get along with Israel. Uh, that's a big part of what the Camp David Accords were about. Um, interestingly, uh, the more, uh, over, over time, the United States has become increasingly pro-Israel. Um, and, you know, even during the era of, of George, uh, of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, uh, the first President Bush, even then there was more 
nuance in U.S. Uh, Israel relations and the and U.S. handling of the Israel-Palestinian conflict than what we see today. Uh, you know, there was uh, there was the administration of President Bush during the Gulf War, first Gulf War. Uh, you know, was concerned about uh, alienating Arab opinion because you know there were Arab nations that were part of the uh, the coalition that was involved in expelling Iraq from Kuwait during that war. And, you know, and, and Egypt participated in that, Syria participated in that, some other countries participated in that, Arab countries. So President George H.W. Bush did not want to alienate uh, Arab opinion, and he, uh, you know, basically leaned on Israel to, uh, you know, to, to tone it down as far as certain things that were going on at the time, because he didn't want the U.S. to be seen as too overly biased towards Israel. Um, interestingly, though, as we get into the 1990s and then into the 2000s, we see the United States becoming even much more pro-Israel. And I think a big part of that has to do with the rise of these people in the United States called the neocons or the neoconservatives. Uh, you know, there's this big question of who are the neoconservatives. And, you know, there's I've written about this, like I've published several essays about this and some of the anthologies that Paul Godfrey has put together about the neoconservatives. But the neoconservatives are a movement that came out of the far left uh, that is rabidly pro-Israel for a variety of reasons. And when we look at the policies of the Clinton administration uh, and the Clinton State Department under people like Madeleine Albright, and then certainly the policies of the George W. Bush administration uh, you know, under the influence of uh, people like Paul Wolfowitz, for example, uh, what we start to see is Israeli and American foreign policy starts to develop this kind of almost symbiotic relationship. Uh, and that's continued to the present time. I mean, we see that today uh, in the United States. We can look at the reaction of the Tony Blinken State Department to the October 7th attacks or, or the, you know, the wider uh, political culture of the United States and then the American media and so forth, uh, which is basically just a mouthpiece for the government. Uh, if we look at all of that, what we see is that, you know, it's almost like America was attacked on October the 7th. Yeah, so we're starting to see this increased blending of the two. Uh, that is not really helpful to the United States in many ways, uh, because the, the uh, Muslim world, the Arab world, the Middle Eastern world, they increasingly blame the United States for the conduct of Israel in the region. Uh, so, it, you know, these, this... Uh, relationship between the United States and Israel is in some ways a liability, but you have a range of interest in the United States. You have a range of economic, uh, political, ideological, uh, religious, and ethnic interest in the United States that converge to create this relationship uh, between the countries. For example, uh, Israel is a guaranteed export market for American arms manufacturers, you know, like the what happens is that America gives all this money, billions of dollars to Israel on the condition that Israel uses some of that money to buy armaments from American arms manufacturers. So it's a guaranteed arms export market for American arms makers that's underwritten by U.S. taxpayers. Of course, uh, Israel is geopolitically uh, important to the United States uh, as a counterbalance of the influence of some of the anti-American Arab states or the Shia countries like Iran. Uh, also, uh, with the rise of the BRICS, of course, the United States wants to have an ally in the region. Although, interestingly, Israel is not a is not 100% allied with the United States when it comes to the East-West conflict. For instance, Israel has refused to join the sanctions on, on uh, Russia over the Ukraine war. So Israel kind of works the East and West against each other. Uh, but the uh, you have that issue. Of course, you have in the United States the Christian Zionist. Christian Zionism is a large subculture in the United States, and it's important an important part of the America of the Republican Party's uh, voting base. So that's that uh, puts pressure on the on the government to appease Israel. Of course, you have a lot of uh, uh, influential Jewish interests that are often very zealously pro uh, Israel as well, including major donors to the Democratic and Republican parties, as well as other influential figures. Uh, so that also is, is an issue. 
so you have all these different kinds of economic, political, you know, ethnic, religious, cultural interests, and so forth that converge, and that makes the U.S.-Israel alliance what it is. Uh, and you know, so it, it's you know, there's this big question of who is the dog and who is the tail. You know, like the the, the Noam Chomsky position is fairly representative of the far left position, which is. Israel is simply a settler state. It's a Western, white European settler state, you know, in the in the, you know, um, among people of color or or you know, third world people or whatever you want to call them, uh, and it serves as a, 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 an imperialist outpost for American or Atlanticist imperialism. You know, that's the Noam Chomsky line. There is, of course, the opposite point of view, which says that. Uh, Israel, I mean, and it's Israel that's actually controlling the United States, you know, that, uh, you know, of course, the anti-Semites believe that, but there are some anti-Zionist Jews who believe that. For example, I once had a conversation with Gilad Osman, who was a very staunchly anti-Zionist Jewish Israeli, and he once told me that he says, your country is a, is a colony of mine. Uh, you know, so, so you have, you have the, that, that point of view coming from a range of directions as well. Uh, and it, it is true that uh, we do see this uh, symbiotic relationship between the two now. But as Tim was saying, the younger generations of people in the United States are increasingly indifferent to Israel. Like to a lot of younger Jewish people in the United States, you know, Israel, uh, you know, um, Israel is just some foreign country in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, it's no more important. Uh, to them than, say, England is to a, a, an American of Anglo-Saxon ancestry or a, an American of German ancestry. Is the, uh, the, uh, uh, and you also see uh, growing disdain for the U.S.-Israel relationship um, among some sectors of the right, you know, sometimes for anti-Semitic reasons, sometimes just on isolationist reasons. Um, although most of the right, it looks like, interestingly, has r rallied behind Israel after this uh, October 7th incident, except for some of the very extreme sectors of the right that are militantly anti-Zionist. Uh, on the left, you see a growing anti-Israel uh, sympathy on the left uh, for the reasons I explained earlier that uh, you know, it, on the left, Israel is viewed as a white, Western, settler, colonialist, imperialist enterprise. Uh, which I think is correct uh, to a large degree, and and also Israel is viewed as an apartheid state. You know, it's viewed as being like Jim Crow uh, in the old American South, or like the former apartheid regime in South Africa, which I think is also correct as well. I mean, I think, it, in fact, if anything, I think Israel is more of an apartheid state than either of those places, uh, because um, in in the South and in the and in and in the former South Africa in the in the American South prior to civil rights and also in the uh, old South African system, you did not have people who were under direct a military occupation. You just had you know, severe social discrimination and a very rigid uh, social uh, stratification system, a caste system. Uh, as a, you know, but in, uh, in, in Gaza, in the West Bank, you actually have actual military occupation. You know, and right now, of course, the uh, the Gazans are being bombarded with bombs, and uh, you know, probably well over 3,000 Gazans have been killed already. Uh, so, yeah, that's where things stand now. Well, my final question here, or set of qu final question, would be Israel's internal politics. I mean, one of the ways in which Israel might no longer exist is it loses its cohesiveness internally. We saw the opposition to Netanyahu in the recent months and so forth, and actually in the short term this probably benefits Netanyahu, which is one of the reasons why some conspiracy theorists have suggested that uh, this attack might have been arranged or allowed to happen to some extent. You know, since Israel has such great security, intelligence services, why didn't why does this happen? Well, the only reason would be, well, they allowed this to happen. Um, and it's interesting who they attacked here. And this, this speaks to the sort of internal divisions within Israel. Um, they attacked a peace festival, music festival. So sort of like a hippie, you know, be sort of like... Um, you sort of like if a terrorist attacked, I don't know, Burning Man conference, a uh, Burning Man thing or something like that. Um, that would be the sort of political, the sort of social parallel to the uh, here uh, or be attacked like a gay nightclub or something like that. Maybe not a gay nightclub, but be, be attacking something like that. Um, so 
as we, Israel, you know, like, and this goes back to my like, political science studies too, you know, is Israel a democracy? Well, if you exclude the people they don't allow to vote and so forth, then yes, Israel is a democracy in the same way France or the United States or Canada is a democracy. Again, democracy is this kind of idiotic word. It doesn't, it has a lot of, it's sort of absent of conceptual meaning here. I mean, North Korea sort of considered itself a democracy too. Um, but like internally, Israel's politics have been more or less "quote unquote" stable, um, or stable enough since you started with Ben Gurion and so forth. But even the '73 war, I think internally, some people blame it on. I think that leader itself was somewhat ostensibly left wing, um, and you also have the growing influence of the uh, Orthodox Jews, who are exclu- are exempt from military service as of now. That may have changed here. So unlike the United States, and for that matter, Western Europe, Israel's considering its enemies sort of has to continually stay on the offensive posture um, with large-scale military conscription. Um, Most people have to serve in the military for at least a year or two. So these are kind of civic things which take a lot of work to maintain here. And if they collapse and the enemies are quote-unquote hungry, it just goes away. So what what, what would you speak to Israel's internal politics um, currently, I mean, I, we just recently saw the uh, rallies against them. It just seems, it seems on that level, um, that is also could be to some extent a house of cards as well. Can they keep the various? Because they they can agree in theory, but can they keep all these newer Soviet immigrants that came in after the collapse of the uh, Berlin Wall, the USSR, as well as the older ones, as well as they sort of face this, a lot of similar secularization trends as um, places like Britain and the United States. The only difference is, is they're viewed, you know, the Cherokee aren't really a threat to the United States in that sense. But like Israel could end up, uh, <laughs> that would be the more thing. Well, what would you say the long-term internal spot on Israel's political system and state? Keith? Yeah, well, Israel in its earlier phase, did have a more left-wing orientation because, like I was saying earlier, it was Zionism was founded by liberal and left-wing secular Jews, some of whom were communists or socialists. That's what, why you have the kibbutzim in uh, Israel. You know, those were supposed to be socialist communes or a prototypical communist society or something like that. Uh, and many Zionists hoped that that there would be a socialist uh, country uh, for Jews in Israel. Um, And throughout Israel's history, in in their parliament, the Knesset, their their version of of the parliament, you've always seen a a wide representation of viewpoints in the Knesset. In fact, there's, there's always been more diversity of opinion, at least until recently, there has always been more diversity of opinion in Israel's Knesset in their parliament than in the United States, because in the Knesset, you would have everything from communists all the way over to the ultra-Orthodox religious parties. Uh, in fact, even in the media, even in Israel's media, even today, really, well, not maybe not since October 7th, but uh, until very recently, you would actually see a wider range of opinions about Israelis' policies towards the Palestinians and all that being debated in Israel's media than in the United States. So that was always an interesting feature of Israel society. So yeah, in in Israel, you have basically apartheid. It's basically, or like the Hindu caste system or something like that. You have this kind of system of ascribed status, social stratification based on description, um, you know, segregation, all of this kind of stuff, you know, that people associate with apartheid. Uh, But for those who were in the in club, you had, you know, a, a relatively democratic society in terms of different viewpoints being represented and things like that. Now, Israel has taken a sharp rightward turn in recent years. It's one of the few countries in the world where the young people are more racist and more religious than older people. That's the, you know, in most countries around the world, you don't find that. You find that younger people tend to be less religious, less prone towards, say, racial outgroup hostility uh, or, or exclusion than, than older people. But it, it, it's precisely the opposite in Israel. Young people tend to be more right-wing. Uh, and, and 
over time, right-wing parties have gotten a lot more influence in Israel. Uh, but Benjamin Netanyahu is a good example. He represents the Likud party. The Likud are kind of like our neocons uh, here in the States, or, or maybe they're maybe even to, somewhat to the right of that. They may be like some of the Euro-nationalist parties. Um, but they're aligned with the ultra-Orthodox Zionist parties. We have ultra-Orthodox Jews that are anti-Zionist, um, and they're constantly in conflict with the Israeli state. But you also have Jewish, the, the equivalent of Jewish religious fundamentalists who are gung-ho Zionists. Uh, and Netanyahu is aligned with these folks. Uh, and some of these folks are pretty hardcore. I mean, if you listen to some of the things they say about the Palestinians, they sound like Heinrich Himmler talking about the Jews or something like that. Um, and, and that's who's running the you know, Israel's government. Or, or these are some of the people who hold some of the key positions in, in Israel's government today. So Israel has become much more right-wing over time. Uh, interestingly, Israeli society is very, very divided. Uh, you know, prior to this October 7th incident, there, were, there had been mass demonstrations in Israel against Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, and the issue there is... Um, it's similar to the conflict in the United States between Donald Trump and, and the liberals in the sense that you've got the Trump people and they tend to be aligned with the religious conservatives and nationalists and populists and all of that. And then you have the liberals and they tend to be aligned with the, the deep state, you know, the CIA and FBI and that stuff. Um, and, and Israel is the same way. You have the liberals and they tend to be aligned with Mossad, which is the intelligence services for Israel, kind of like the CIA in the U.S. or the MI6 in Britain, and then you've got the uh, you know Netanyahu aligned, of course, with the, the religious parties, and Netanyahu is somewhat similar to Trump. He's this kind of hard, you know populist nationalist uh, leader. He's 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 a lot smarter than Trump, um, but and he's also always in trouble with the law. Like there's currently uh, some I think criminal indictments pending against Netanyahu as well, and he's very controversial in Israel itself. Uh, even after this uh, latest uh, October 7th incident, uh, some, Netanyahu's approval rating in, in, in Israel is something like you know, 20%, which is polar opposite of what happened to the United States after September 11th. Right after September 11th, George W. Bush's approval rating was something like 90%. Now, of course, he blew it later on, but early on he had a very high approval rating. Uh, but Netanyahu is just the opposite. You know, his approval rating has gone down since October 7th. Uh, because a lot of Israelis blame him for the uh, October 7th attack. They look at it like, you know, he was he, his, he or his administration were sleeping on the job or they've taken such a hard line position against the Palestinians that they've sabotaged uh, any hope for a negotiated settlement. Or, you know, there's, so there's a lot of dislike for Netanyahu in, um, in Israel. Uh, in fact, a lot of people are predicting he's not going to last this particular war. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's where Israelis... Israeli politics is now has taken a sharp turn to the right uh, in recent years, particularly among younger people. Uh, and, 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 and parallel to that, you see the same thing among the Palestinians. You see that younger Palestinians have also become increasingly more militant because you know, all, all they've really known is things like growing up under the Gaza blockade. You know, like, like the block, Gaza's blockade has been going on since I think 2006. All right, so somebody who was five years old then is like, you know, what, 20, well, they would be about 22 now, right? So their whole life, um, that's all they've ever known, is being living under this Israeli blockade. Same thing in the West Bank. You have Palestinians that are just used to more and more of these Jewish settlements coming in and, you know, seizing their orchards and seizing their homes and businesses, you know, basically eminent domain. It's kind of like their version of eminent domain. Uh, and that's all they know. Uh, so you're, you're starting to see Palestinian young people move towards hardline tendencies like Hamas, like Islamic Jihad, you know, like the MPLA. Uh, no, what is not the MPLA? It's the uh, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. That's a Marxist-Landist group. Uh, you know, towards things like that. Um, so the uh, yeah, so and then out of that we see you know what's going on now. We see this polarization. Uh, and we see the violence that's erupted. You know, as far as the attack on the music festival, one thing about that is that as horrific as it was, um, one of the reasons for it was that it was taking place uh, in an area that's adjacent to the Gaza wall. 
you know, like imagine people having something like Burning Man going on, you know, adjacent to, you know, a prison, you know, uh, yeah, it, that's, that's kind of like what was, what was happening there. Uh, and I suspect that's one of the reasons why that festival was targeted. Also, the way Hamas and other Palestinian militants view uh, the Israelis is because Israel has universal military service and the people attending this music festival are mostly young people to them in the minds of the Palestinian militants, they're simply attacking IDF soldiers. You know, when they see a young Israeli person, what they see is an enemy soldier. They see somebody who is either actively in the IDF or in the IDF reserve or something like that. So to them attacking a group of young Israeli people at a music festival, that's just like attacking, attacking enemy soldiers, even if they happen to be on R and R or off duty or something like that. Um, and there's a similar view. The Israelis take a similar view of the Gazans. They look at it like, well, the Gazans, you know, they elected their government. They elected Hamas. Now they haven't had an election in about 20 years, but the, they did have an election some years ago. And, uh, and uh, Hamas won, um, which is to be expected because when people are under siege, they often, you know, turn to hardline leaders. Uh, I think that's how George W. Bush got reelected in 2004. Uh, so the Israelis view the Palestinians the same way. They view them as, well, okay, you elected your government, you support your government. Uh, you know, that's on you. Too bad for you. And, and that's the position that Al Qaeda took towards the United States. Their position was Americans uh, elect their government. Uh, they're, they're responsible for their government's policies, so they're all guilty of you know, whatever grievances we, we have against them. But that's the state of mind that we're dealing with in this conflict. That was very um, interesting, Keith. I didn't realize that the, um, the Palestinians would treat the young Israelis as, um, as uh, enemy soldiers, essentially, due to the uh, military service, which is an interesting point, which I haven't heard anyone else uh, mention. Um, all I will say is we live in interesting times and what will happen next is not obvious. And I'd just like to thank you for joining us and I'd like to thank everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your friends and family and subscribe to us on Podbean or on YouTube. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access this material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason at all, please contact us at mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. Oh, 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 oh,